0: Today, I have the honor of reading from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. My name is Nate Irwin, and I'm the pastor of Global Outreach here at College Park. And it's my privilege to fill in for Pastor Mark while he's on vacation. Rebecca just read a staggering passage to us. Why don't we ask God to help us understand it? Lord Jesus, you said that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And our prayer would be that today we might honor you by hearing your word, and that in that great judgment day as well, we would be able to honor you. By having lived lives that are pleasing to you. Would your Holy Spirit now help us to understand this very difficult teaching of yours? Would you bring it afresh to our hearts today, we ask, in your name, Lord Jesus? Amen. Well, the day is coming Judgment Day. And I wonder what you think about when you hear those two words. What's the first thing that pops in your mind when I say the words Judgment Day? LeBron James. What pops in your mind when you think of the words Judgment Day? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, The Arnold
0: Schwarzenegger movie.
1: Schwarzenegger movie. (laughs) Judgment Day. The movie. Yeah, and uh, Jesus Christ.
0: Terminator, the movie. I don't really watch... TV that much. Yeah, snow. <laughs> I don't think about
1: it. I don't think about it. I don't
0: think it exists. Such
1: thing.
0: Judgment <laughs> Day? Yeah. The apocalypse. <laughs> you say the apocalypse? Hell yeah. Yeah. What's what about you guys? Day? What is it? She said, what's the good <laughs> <day?" laughs> I think of, um, uh, voting. I don't know. Voting? Like voting. What voting? Talking in front of me. Yeah, yeah, like, like the apocalypse, judgment. The, day. the, they the judge. last. Nah, I think of like the last books of, or the last day, or what's it called, the Book of Revelations.
1: Okay, so vote. What do you, what do you mean voting? Like
0: when you vote and then they judge. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't you're know. asking the two wrong people. <laughs> let you know. Judgment day. Judgment day.
1: You think he's right and you're wrong? Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you? Yeah. yeah. Is he's he really like, smart? Yeah. I don't think I'm right. I just that's just my that's just what pops into my head first. (laughs) Who's right though? What do you think? I'm thinking I don't think think the voting thing was right, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Judgment day. Judgment day. A day that everybody judges everybody. Like I judge her. A day that every that all people judge all people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not?
1: Well that was a little survey that we did this week in the Broad Ripple area. And it's, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I see that. Uh, there actually were some good responses. Some people did know actually what it was about. And the, the full results of the survey are in the, the sermon notes at the end, if you'd like to take a look at those. But maybe not right now. Um, <laughs> but actually, the runaway winner was not the Worldwide Entertainment Wrestling Federation, who also has their Judgment Day. must not be many wrestling fans here in town. But the survey says the winner is... Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator 2, by two-to-one numbers over Jesus Christ. And I love the way that that girl ended it at the end. She said, why not? And, and that's the question I want to answer today. Why can't the judgment day be whatever we want it to be? And the answer, very simply, is that the judge has already told us what that day is going to be like. This today is the final section of Jesus' teaching on his return, the The series we're doing that the end is near and it's Jesus' final story before he goes into the passion. This is the last thing he told the people before he gave his life on the cross. So it's an important passage. He has talked about the signs that will precede his coming. He's told us that we need to be ready for his coming. And now he says why we need to be ready. And the answer is because he's coming to judge. And then he goes on and tells us specifically how we can be ready and that's our purpose this morning to understand how exactly we can be ready for the great judgment day. This is a sneak preview of coming, not necessarily attractions. Well, this text teaches us three truths about judgment day. The first is the reality of judgment day, verses 31 to 33. Notice first the glory of Jesus in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus refers to himself by his favorite name, the Son of Man. But the emphasis of this verse is on the glory of Jesus. And the human heart craves glory. And what's the most glorious thing you've ever seen? No, it's not going to be 6.30 tonight in the Cowboys Stadium at kickoff, even though John's got his Packers shirt on today. Would it be the majesty of the Rocky Mountains or the beauty of a sunset over the ocean or the vastness of the Grand Canyon? All of those things are truly glorious, but they're but a candle compared to the sun of the glory of Jesus Christ. And in a few minutes, I want to try and use Human words, but words from scripture to help you understand that when Jesus comes, he's going to come in his glory. The Bible says that he is the image of the invisible God, that all the fullness of deity dwells in him. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the one whose face shone like the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration. And his clothes became as white as the light. Jesus is the one that Daniel saw in his revelation. When he says that thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days came in. And his throne was flaming with fire. The wheels of the the throne were ablaze with fire. And out of the throne came a river of fire. He says the court was seated and books were opened and Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, the Ancient of Days. And into that scene comes one, as Daniel sees it, like the Son of Man, our Jesus Christ. And he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was given, the text says, authority, glory, and sovereign power. This is the Jesus that John saw in his revelation When he saw one like a son of man who was clothed in a robe reaching down to his feet and across his chest was a sash of gold. His head and his hair were white, as white as wool. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His face was like the the sun in all of its brilliance, John said. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who one day will roar. Jesus is the one of whom loud voices in heaven said in Revelation 11 that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders bowed down on their faces and worshipped Him and said, May glory and honor be His forever and ever, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, whose name is faithful and true, the one whose eyes are like blazing fire and on whose head are many crowns. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and His name is the Word of God. He judges righteously and makes war on the nations and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to crush the nations because he will rule them with an iron scepter and on his thigh and on his chest are written this name, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is this Jesus, verse 31 says, who is going to come in all of his glory No longer veiled by the covering of human flesh that he adopted when he came to live on earth. And we will see him in that majesty. The verse says he will come not alone. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. How powerful is one angel. Powerful enough to kill all the firstborn of Egypt in one night. Strong enough to wipe out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And now Jesus is coming with myriads, millions and millions of angels. His awe-inspiring, suck-your-breath-away posse of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the text says he sits on his throne in heavenly glory. He is coming again to sit on his throne and to judge the earth. A proper understanding of the judgment day, my friends, has got to begin with the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Not with what you or I think should happen on that day of judgment or what might happen. But what the judge himself has said is going to happen. Secondly, notice the scope of judgment. Verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. This is a global, a universal judgment. All peoples will come before this judge. But it's also individual. And he will separate, verse 32 goes on to say, people one from another. What he wants us to picture is every person who ever lived throughout history and across the world is going to be gathered in a huge throng before the throne of Jesus Christ that he comes to sit upon. And he is going to judge every single one, you and me included. Thirdly, notice the clarity of his justice. Verse 32b, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now during the day, a a flock of sheep and goats would mingle together and graze, you know, side by side. But at night, the sheep, are happy to be out in the open air, but the goats like to be in the warm sheep pen. And so the shepherd every evening would, would gather the flock together and then divide them into the sheep and the goats. And he never had any questions about who the sheep and the, who, who the goats were. They had distinguishing characteristics and he knew exactly which one was which. And there was no, never anything else but a sheep or a goat. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. He's saying that all humanity will be divided into two and only two groups on the day of judgment. There will be no defense. There will be no lawyers. There will be no argument, no appeals, only a decision by the judge. In fact, this isn't a trial at all. All this is is a sentencing because the judge already has all the evidence that he needs. He knows every day of your life and everything that you've done And this day of judgment is going to be the day that he decides your eternal destiny. Now, this idea of two divisions is not popular in our day and age. As Erwin Lutzer has said, we used to think that everybody had a right to their own opinion. Now we're taught to think that everyone's opinion is right. In fact, it's not politically correct to say to somebody, you're wrong. But you know what? Jesus cares nothing for our notions of political correctness. He spells it out like it is, and he divided humanity into two groups and only two. In fact, we see this motif all the way through the book of Matthew. This is not something new that he's teaching us. How many gates were there in the Sermon on the Mount? Two, the wide and the narrow. How many trees were there? Two, the good and the bad. How many houses were there? Two, the one on the rock and the one on the sand. How many virgins were there in our discussion last Sunday? Two types, the wise and the foolish. All of humanity will be divided into one of two groups on the day of judgment. You see, Jesus is the giant boulder in the middle of the river. And the water has to go on either one side or the other. When you meet Jesus, you have to decide what you're going to do with him. And the end of history will have not only a glorious unification of everything in Christ, Ephesians 1.10 But an awful separation of people apart from Christ. This division is the only one that that really matters. See, in the kingdom of God, there's no room for racism, for sexism, for elitism, or for nationalism. Those distinctions are gone because we're all equal before the cross. But there is, if I can coin a new word, salvationism. There are those who are saved and those who will not be saved, but will be judged eternally. And Jesus is very clear about his standard of justice. This verdict of Jesus is the single most important thing about you, no matter what else you might think this morning. What is he going to call you on that day? A sheep or a goat? Everything hinges on that. Secondly, the rationale of judgment day, verses 34 to 45. If this decision is so monumental, we had better understand the basis of it. And Jesus goes on to explain it. It's not an arbitrary, capricious decision. But much to our relief, the judge is both true and fair. And here's where the text gets interesting. Because he's about to tell us how we can get ready for that judgment day. He's going to reveal his criterion for distinguishing between the sheep and the goats. And there's one feature and one feature only. Verse thirty-five, he says, "For," in other words, he's explaining why the sheep get to go into heaven, and in verse forty-two, he uses the same word "for" and explains the reason why the goats go into eternal punishment. So he's spelling out the rationale for his decision, and it's it's simply this: that the sheep did six things that the goats did not do. That's all he says. In fact, you get kind of tired of it repeating itself. But here are the six things he says. You fed the hungry, you gave drink to the thirsty, you welcomed the stranger, you clothed the naked, you cared for the sick, and you visited those in prison. That's all he says. Now, both groups are puzzled, but not at the decision. Rather, they don't understand the basis or the rationale for the decision. You see, the reason the sheep get into heaven is that they helped Jesus, is what he says, you saw me hungry and thirsty and naked and so forth. And the reason the goats don't get into heaven is that they didn't help Jesus when they saw him hungry and thirsty and naked. The sheep are surprised because all they've been doing their whole lives is just helping people. They didn't think they were doing some grand work for some God. And, and the goats are surprised because the question they ask later in the text reveals this about them. They imply that if they had actually seen Jesus in need, they would have helped him. But all that they ignored was simply ordinary people. And on that basis, he gives the verdict of guilty and sends them to eternal punishment. Well, there are three questions we need to answer in this section. First is, who is Jesus talking about? Who are these needy people? people and we need to do careful biblical interpretation here and verse 40 is the key look at verse 40 and the king will answer them truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you did it to me Matthew uses this expression the least of these five times in his book and every time it refers to disciples of Jesus Christ the word brothers always refers to either physical or spiritual kin. And so putting those two together, some interpreters see these texts referring to any needy person at all in the world. But it seems clear to me from the text on closer inspection that what Jesus is talking about based on verse 40 is not everybody in the world, but Christians in need. The least of these, my brothers, he says, need to be helped by you if you want to get into heaven. He's talking about believers. Now, we're, we're to do good to everyone, that's for sure. We're to love our neighbor as ourself, whether they're Christians or not. We're to care for the poor in general, whether they're believers or not. We're to do good to everyone, Paul said, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so what Jesus, I think, is talking about in this passage is helping Christians in need. He's expanding on what he said in In chapter 10, verse 40 and 42, when he sent the disciples out to preach. And he says at the end of this, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And that actually makes perfect sense if you think about it. In what sense are you helping Jesus when you help a Christian? Well, did you know that somebody who is a Christian actually has Jesus living inside them? Because when you repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he comes to live in you by his Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, not just in a metaphorical way, he is in an actual real way present in every single Christian in the whole world. And so when you and I see a Christian in need, we need to look through their skin and see the Holy Spirit, see Jesus inside them. And that will stir us then to have the action and the assistance that is needed for them. Tertullian said, you saw a brother, you saw your Lord. Well, secondly, what is he talking about? What kind of help is he referring to? Well, there are three categories. Food and drink represent the most basic human needs. Clothing and hospitality would be another step up the hierarchy. And finally, visiting hurting people when they are not in productive circulation or attractive or strategic. These are the things that Jesus wants us and expects us to be involved in. Meeting practical needs and doing it wisely, using the resources we've been given to help those who have less. But the third question is the most complicated of all. How does this fit into a biblical theology? Because right about now, you should be having a real big question mark above your head. If you've been trained in good evangelical theology, what do we believe as evangelicals? That salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And liberals teach that salvation is by faith plus works, that you have to do something to get into heaven. But what is Jesus appearing to be teaching in this passage? He says nothing about faith. He says only something about works. Those who have done something will get into heaven. Those who have failed to do something will go to hell. Now that seems like a pretty complicated distinction that we need to figure out. You see, we need to understand the true gospel because that's what's at stake here. And, and let me just pose this question to you. A couple of weeks ago, I was in China visiting some of our missionaries and, and read the China Daily. They had an article in there about... Chen Guangbiao, who is a leading philanthropist in China, he's given away 200 million dollars and he's promised that when he dies, he will give his whole estate away to charity. He's being held up as a leading philanthropist. In fact, he said in 2010, he got an average of one award every day for his philanthropy. Now, let me ask you this question based on Jesus words. Will Chen Guangbiao get into heaven? Or, to push the analogy even right to the edge of the table, how about if somebody like Hitler, or maybe even Hitler himself, were to give some money to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, would he get into heaven? You see the problem we've got here? The the challenge is that Matthew is not writing a systematic theology. Jesus is not giving us everything that we need to know here in this one Preview of the coming day of judgment. And what we need to do carefully in biblical interpretation is to understand how all of scripture fits together. It's called the analogy of faith. And very simply, it means that since God cannot lie and since scripture has been breathed from God, scripture cannot contradict itself. And so somehow we have to take all the parts of scripture and see how they fit together in a beautiful symphony. And what Jesus has not told us here is something that we find in other parts of Scripture. In fact, even himself, when Nicodemus came to him and said, what must I do to be saved? He said, you have to be born again. And how do you be born again? By believing in the name of the Son of God, he says in John chapter 3. And yet he turns around in Matthew 5.20 and says, for instance, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't get into heaven. So Jesus is saying both things. Is, Is he a liberal? Well, this, of course, was the rallying cry of the Reformation. When Luther understood clearly from Scripture that the just shall live by faith and by faith alone. And that caused him to separate from the Catholic Church who taught that works were a part of salvation. So so how do we fit all this together? Well, there's a very important link that Jesus doesn't mention here. And interestingly enough, I think it's his brother, James, who helped me tie these things together. In a very familiar passage, James says that faith without works is what? Does dead help? Does dead work? No. If that's the kind of faith you have, it's worthless. And here's how he worded. it: What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. As someone has well stated, it is faith alone that saves, but saving faith is never alone. John puts it this way in his epistle, if anyone has the world's goods and closes and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In fact, we could ask, how does God abide in him if God's love is not in him? Jesus, I believe in our text this morning, is saying the same thing he said throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that by their fruit you will know them. He will know believers on the day of judgment, who the sheep are and who the goats are, by the fruit or lack of it, of their faith. Here's a couple of quick diagrams that might help you see this a little clearer. See, we get to heaven in the whole teaching of Scripture because we are justified by faith alone. But that faith alone is going to produce good works of necessity. And then those good works will be the evidence or the proof that we have saving faith and the proof that we're going to get into heaven. Or we could diagram it this way. If you repent and believe, if you receive the free gift of salvation, you will be justified. You will be made right in God's sight. But that's not where the process ends. Then God gives you his Holy Spirit who begins to live in you. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And what does love do? It acts. So if you don't have any action, it means you don't have love, which means you don't have the Holy Spirit, which means you've never been justified, which means you've never repented and believed. And that's the process that Jesus doesn't describe here. What he's doing is just telling us about the fruit and not the root. If we had a diagram of the whole thing, we would see the plant above ground that bears the fruit that he's talking about. And we would see the root beneath the ground, which is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If I sent you out into an orchard of peach trees and apple trees and told you to cut down all the peach trees, would, would you cut off a piece of bark and do a DNA analysis of each tree to figure out what kind of tree it was? Well, you could do that. It would just take an awful long time. There would be a much easier way to decide which the peach trees were and which the apples. Everyone that had a peach fruit on it, you would cut down. And if the pre, if the peach fruit said, don't cut me down, I'm an apple tree. You say you're talking nonsense. Now, it's not the fruit that makes it a peach tree. That, that's already in its DNA. But it's the fruit that proves that it's a peach tree. And I think that's simply what Jesus is saying. Your DNA changes when you put faith in Jesus Christ and you become something different than you were before. His love fills you and his love overflows you. And if it doesn't, there's very good reason to doubt whether you've ever been regenerated and changed or not. You see, Jesus is interested in the righteousness of the whole person from the heart that begins with the imputed righteousness of Jesus but works itself through our whole lives like yeast works through dough and produces these wonderful fruits like caring for Christians in need. This is what Jonathan Edwards called the rules of the gospel. A very helpful phrase that I just came across recently. The rules of the gospel are this. If you have received grace freely, you have to give mercy freely. You can't, on the one hand, receive what God has done for you and then close your heart towards people in need. Because if you do that, you've never received his grace in full at all. If you accept the gospel and become a Christian, you are going to, of necessity, by logical mandate, let that love flow out of you to others. And if that process is stopped, it means that you don't understand and have never fully received the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the rationale behind, I think, what Jesus was saying here. Well, finally, the result of Judgment Day. As there are two groups of people, so there are two destinations and only Two, Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is blessing that has been prepared for the sheep from before the creation of the world. It is the kingdom of God where there will be pure joy and delight and peace and bliss, where there will be uninterrupted direct communion with Jesus Christ and his father forever and ever. There will be no more pain or sorrow or crying or tears or death in that beautiful kingdom. And that's where the sheep get to go. But the verdict for the goats is that they will be cursed. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Wow. Their verdict is threefold separation. Depart from me. All that is good and right and lovely will be taken away from their presence forever. Association. Who will be their companions in hell forever and ever? It is the devil and his minions. Will be the only friends they have in hell. And finally he says there will be pain and agony. He calls it eternal fire. It's a metaphor that's used at least nine other times in the book of Matthew for describing what hell is going to be like. It's the same metaphor that John uses in Revelation 20.10 when he says that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then he says that those whose names were not found written in the book of life, all of the goats in this analogy, are going to be cast into that lake of fire along with Satan and all of his demons. Well, is that going to be a literal fire? i don 't imagine that it will fire burns these bodies, but it has no effect on heavenly bodies. but why the metaphor? because I think that 's the single most painful and anguish inducing experience that a human body can go through. So when I say that there's not fire in hell don 't say well hell 's not a big deal then no. Jesus uses that metaphor exactly for that reason to try to describe to you the terrible torment and anguish and suffering and pain that there will be in hell. And he says it will be eternal torment day and night forever and ever. Do you object to such a horrible doctrine? I admit I cringe when I think about that. It might turn people into infidels. And say, oh, I can't believe that because the God I know would never do that to people. Well, if this is the word of God, which we believe it is, then you need to believe what he said about the eternal state of the goats. And that is that they will be suffering in anguish forever and ever. As D.A. Carson said, it's not how men respond to a doctrine, but it's what Jesus teaches about it that's important. Well, you might be saying, great. Great. I came to church this morning looking for a little encouragement. I wanted some little wind in my sail so I could at least get through the next week. And all I get is this hellfire and brimstone preacher up there yelling at me. Well, this is a hard saying of Jesus, to be sure. But but let me remind you that it's only one note in the orchestral revelation that he's given to us. One note, but a critical note nonetheless. You need to hear this. But there are other notes. He has gentle words as well. He says, Come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus wants you to come to him and to be changed, to be transformed, to find rest and peace. He's not just a hellfire breathing dragon ready to destroy you. Now that day will come. And the day is coming when he will be gentle no more. And that's the message you need to hear today. The door of grace will be slammed shut one day. But today it is wide open and Jesus calls to you, come unto me and receive freely of the water of life. Why were you glued to your TV last Monday evening? You remember? I would suggest to you it's because you wanted to hear bad news. Now you didn't maybe piece it together that way, but you knew what? A storm was coming. And you wanted all the information you could get about that storm so that you could get yourself ready and know how to plan the next day. You wanted bad news because it was reality. Now, I love Randy Allis, but weathermen are only trying to predict the weather and they often get it wrong. This is not a weatherman. This is the guy who creates the weather. This is Jesus who's going to roll up the skies like a scroll one day. And he's coming back in his glory and he's telling you ahead of time what's going to happen on that day. And he wants you to be ready for it. The probability of judgment day is 100% for each one of us. And he wants us to be ready. That's why he told us this. He doesn't want to surprise us with such an awful piece of news. And how is it that we're ready? By helping believers in need. Notice how simple and practical these six points are. Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, help strangers take them in, provide clothes for those who need them, visit the sick, care for them, and visit those who are in prison. You don't have to be a great preacher. You don't have to start huge projects. You don't have to be performing miracles. These are just simple, everyday things that you can do to help people in need. And that's what Jesus wants to see. A little bit of fruit of the evidence of the Holy Spirit living in your life. So, are you doing these things? Joel Green says, The disposition of one's possessions signifies the disposition of one's heart. So I want you to think about that as we close this morning. Tim Keller said in his book, Gracious justice. We should spend far more of our money and wealth on the poor than we do on our own entertainment or on vacations or on eating out and socializing with important peers. So what I'd like to ask you to do actually even right now. What if we did just a little dry run before the judgment day. Take a piece of paper or there's plenty of room on the back of the bulletin. And 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 think for about 30 seconds. I'd like you to write down. I'm just trying to help you here, okay? Because this is going to happen someday. I think if we do a a rehearsal, you might be more ready for that day. Write down everything that you and your family has done in the last, let's say, three months in these six areas. Have you provided food for the hungry? Have you provided drink for the thirsty? Have you provided food for the uh, clothing for the naked? Have you welcomed in strangers? Have you visited the sick and cared for them? Have you been to prison and visit those there? What do you have on your tally sheet that you're going to show the judge on that day? It's better that you do it now than get surprised on that last day. And if you're having trouble putting much down, like, frankly, I was as I thought about it. I think there are three possibilities this morning. The first is that you're a goat and you know it. And, and if you are, we're, we're glad you're here. We really are. You've come on a great Sunday to hear the Word of God. But, but if, if truth be told, you don't love Jesus with all of your heart and mind. You've never put your faith in Him and you've never repented from your sin. You're not a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And my appeal to you today is that today is the day of salvation. You can become a sheep right now. And there will be some folks after the service at the front, and I'll be here as well. We'd love to explain in more detail how you can become a sheep and have confidence on that day of judgment. Secondly, and perhaps most complicated of all, you might be a goat this morning who thinks you're a sheep. And and that's the tricky one. You think you know Jesus. You've made some kind of intellectual commitment to him. But as you look at your life, there's just really no fruit at all of that. The danger is that you may know him in your head, but not your heart. Because you never got serious about doing his will. And on that day, you're going to say to him, Lord, Lord, I was in church all the time. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, the Pharisees were hypocrites because they cleaned up the outside of the cup. But inside they were full of all kind of wickedness. And you know what one of those kinds of wickedness was? Greed and covetousness. You see, when we give stuff away, it, it clears the inside of the cup from the greed and covetousness that so readily wraps its fingers around our hearts. And that's why Jesus wants you to do that. The danger is that you think you're a sheep when you're really a goat. And you've got nothing to show on that paper. That reality might be more true than you ever imagined. And so my challenge for you today is come to Jesus and give him your life and then let him fill you with his love and his spirit so that you can go out and make a difference in the world in which you live. Thirdly, you might be a sheep, a real sheep, but you have one of two problems. The first is that if truth be told, your heart is cold. Frankly, you just don't care all that much about other people. You've made it as far as you have in life, and you're struggling to get across the finish line yourself. But what Jesus is telling you this morning, it's not enough to just drag your tail end across the finish line and just squeak it. He's saying, no, if you have been regenerated by me, I want to fill you with my spirit. And I want to produce in you those good works that will be an evidence of your regeneration and being made new. See, before you can give this neighbor love, you have to receive it. And maybe you need to receive more of his love today. But the second possibility, if you're a sheep and don't have anything on your paper, is that you don't get out much. If, if you're like me, you live in a suburban bubble, and I frankly don't really know in this country any hungry and thirsty and naked people. Well, if that's your situation today, let me suggest that you get out a little bit more. Because they exist in this world and in our city. We have a wonderful ministry called Brookside that's reaching out to people in our inner city who have these exact needs. See Dale Shaw and get involved in that ministry. Do something to help those who are needy believers in our city. There's a whole nother level of needy believers as you go into the developing world. Needs in India and Togo and Cambodia and Pakistan and on and on where there are repressive regimes, where there is flood and famine, where, where, where people don't even have any government services to give them a penny to take care of themselves. I was just in Cambodia with some meetings with World Relief. They're one excellent agency that we would recommend to you. We met two girls there, two women who they had ministered to. And, and the lady in the blue, let me just tell you her story as we end. She's one of the least of these. She lost her first husband in the Khmer Rouge regime. She lost her second husband in 2001 to AIDS. She was given the drugs for AIDS because she had contracted it from her husband. And they overdosed her and she became blind. And here she was at age 50, completely rejected by society and even her own son. The least of these, my brothers. World Relief's Cell Church came around this woman, cared for her, met her physical needs... And now today we got to hear her testimony of smiling and rejoicing in God's goodness to her through his people. That's what he wants. You are Jesus in the world to the needy people of this world. So find something to get involved with both here locally and around the world. And why? So that you'll get into heaven? No. Because you've already received the free gift of eternal life. And those who have freely received will freely give. And if you do so, you will be able to stand before the Son of Man at His coming and receive a rich welcome into your eternal reward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love these words of yours when you said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Oh, we praise you for your free gift of salvation through your death on the cross. You paid our penalty so that we might walk free. We worship you for that. And oh, Lord Jesus, you who have come to take residence in the lives of those of us who are your sheep. I pray that we would let you release that energy of love, that we would let go of The things that we so selfishly cling to. That we would release them for your kingdom. That we might help your believers here and around the world who are in need. And bring you great joy. Help us to that end we ask in your name Lord Jesus. Amen. Now go and be the salt and light of Jesus in your world.